Hello and welcome. I am Jody Rye and this is season one of our show, We Are BC Fed Leaders, where career journeys of amazing public servants in British Columbia and other regions are shared in the hopes of inspiring dialogue, generating ideas, and enhancing learning. This podcast series, the first of its kind in the BC Federal Service, is the brainchild of Cynthia Bouchard, Dr. Judy Beck, and yours truly. The BC Fed Leaders campaign is in full swing, and the momentum for it to be the united voice for leaders in BC is gaining traction. The focus of the BC Fed Leaders campaign launch is cultivating and sustaining a culture of continuous learning, applying systems thinking to how we do things, with the ultimate hope of creating a high-performing public service in BC. This episode is with Rosaya Khan, a strong and passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion. Rosaya candidly shares her experiences and views on creating workplaces and communities where diversity and inclusion are honored and respected. Happy listening and happy learning. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm very excited to hear your thoughts and and your story around diversity and inclusion. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to sharing that. Where would you like to start? To identify, I'm a racially visible female born in Canada of Trinidadian heritage. And although Canadian, I still resonate with my Trinidadian root. Of course, I miss the music, the food, the vibrant colors of the Caribbean, the dancing and the tropical vegetation. Most of all, I miss my extended family. I have a lot still. So I've worked for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans for 20 years, and about four, five years into it, I ended up posting three words on a little piece of paper on my wall, control, compliance, and complacency. What prompted you to yeah. do that? Uh, well, I felt as though I needed to change myself in order to fit in, mm. uh, and even said to a couple of co-workers that I don't feel as though I belong here. I felt like I needed to think a certain way, be and act a certain way. So my coworkers replied, you of all people belong here because you think differently and that's why hmm. you exactly why you need to be here. Wow. So I began to think about why everything was so structured. Like, well, like in the government, there are policies, processes, procedures that need to be followed, of course. The public service needs to be visible in a certain way, level-headed, straightforward thinking, as non-risk takers, Mm-hmm. We need to be seen as those who can maintain control, to be seen as those who comply to policies, protocols, and rules. But how do you exercise free thought innovation to fit inside the controlled environment? Yeah, that's, that's little, a good question. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if there is little space for free thought innovation, then who are the problem solvers? Who are the decision makers, the solution providers? Do we have enough of a diversified collective thought process contribute to the development of solutions. People solve problems based on their experiences, knowledge, or expertise. When you look at the idea around um, a lot of the sort of uh, themes or work that's being done across Canada in the public service around innovation, um, diversity of thought, and even just uh, conversations that are taking place, do you see a shift from what you might have experienced in the past to where we're at now? You do. Yes. I definitely do. Back then, I there was a lot of questions. I was thinking I, I didn't understand why um, things were so structured. Mm. And over the years, through various discussions, I realized, well, we need to be a certain way. 
But also, I thought by being so structured, it it didn't allow for for people or space uh, to to be innovative, really. And this is the new buzzword now: innovation. Yeah, you're and, right. Yeah, and and even you mentioned the word risk taking. That uh-huh. that's come up in in lots of conversations I've had with folks, and even some of the podcasts that we've done previously, where there's this real desire for for the entire government to to take more risks to kind of the dance between risk and innovation i guess if you want to call it there's this yeah. real uh, urge okay let's just try and see how it goes and you know still being mindful of you know who we are as public servants and our accountability uh-huh. to canadians but just sort of gentle nudges <laughs> so we yeah. can so we can try and and perhaps uh continue to as you said that you you do see a shift encourage mm-hmm. diversity of thought and ideas and 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 allow, allowing us to be who we are um and seeing what what beauty can come because of that yes yes and it's nice to be able to be free to be yourself and voice your thought mm-hmm. and your type of thinking your way of thinking Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell me more about um, the work that you do as it relates to diversity and inclusion, whether that be within the government or I know it's a, a huge passion of yours. started at the biological station in 1999 and I remember being super excited to be working there. And of course, being a highly creative person, I had all the, uh, these crazy ideas and was going to change the world. <laughs> so I remember walking into the cafeteria and noticing that I was the only racially visible person there. Hmm. I saw only a few young people, but the majority were older Caucasian men. And I thought to myself, well, how am I going to be able to relate to them? Conversations, sure enough, felt awkward, mostly because I had no idea what they were talking about. Then I wondered, well, how far-reaching was their communication of science to the public? That is, if they got the opportunity to relay their science to the public, what was the range of diversity? Hmm. Like, I know that they can relate to other academics from universities or institutes because they speak the same science language, but what about like other people in the community? Indigenous people, persons with disabilities, or racially visible people, or people from the GDLTQ community? Mm-hmm. My question was, why don't I see more of the equity-seeking groups working here? So one of the the push within the in my my career to to increase diversity awareness was by hosting social. Uh, I had collaborated with a few coworkers. Um, like this, this was my way of building interpersonal relationships, and um, I collaborated with a few workers, co-workers, to hold socials. One of them was a Halloween costume competition to challenge people's creativity. Mm-hmm. Groups united uh, to create some very innovative costumes. So my thinking behind this was, as a young person coming in, how do well now that uh, at that point there were more young people who were hired on. How do we get to know some of the more senior employees or some of the other groups around? Because most people hide in their offices or (laughs) they're out on the field, right? Sure. So at this Halloween costume competition, we had some groups come together um, and create things like human-sized scales to human-sized fish obeliths. Uh, to like a human-sized gooey duck clam. Mm-hmm. It was quite, it was really fun. So were our goals met? Yes. We got to know thy neighbor. Coworkers collaborated and relationships were built. And it gave the newer employees a chance to get to know the more seniors, as well as people from other working groups in that, within that area. So the next challenge was to showcase diversity in relation to cultural diversity. How do you even touch on the subject within the public service? 
Now, I had an idea and it approached a senior scientist by the name of Dr. Richard Beamish to just obtain feedback. He was super encouraging and helped to get the wheels turning on it. Basically, I was wondering if employees knew of some sort of traditional fables or children's stories which could have stemmed from their family's country of origin, like stories that were told or retold by parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents. I had assumed that many countries from around the world had some sort of traditional fables or children's stories. Mm -hmm. Now, if that was the case, the stories didn't transcend generations. So we did have many entries, like scientists, human resource personnel, technicians, biologists, and managers all came together to share a creative children's story, with only a few submitted as a traditional cultural story. And the book... That was created. It was called From Sea to Sky, Children's Stories from the Station. Wow. that was And so this was actually, um, I guess, pu- published, if you want to call it that. Um, well, no, we, we couldn't really publish it as public service employees. Oh, I guess but, I mean, like, it was if it was a book, it was in, in print in some way, shape. Written. Right. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, the fam- family and friends of employees came together to create artwork for the book. Uh, one was an outstanding monkfish sketch, and another was a beautiful Chinese watercolor piece, which was submitted in its original form on rice paper. Wow. Do you still have the book? <laughs> I, I could probably get one printed out. I have one. Mine's all pretty ratty. <laughs> uh, but I yes, just, I should get, yeah, get one printed out. If it's a li- yeah, if we were if we were be allowed to share within, um, I think it'd be really neat. I, it sounds amazing, to be honest with you, in terms of um, the connections that you were drawing uh, with regards to culture and storytelling and um, transcending generations. Like, what a beautiful, tangible example of connecting all those things in um, in a format that unites. Like, that's so it's so great. Thank you, Jody. Yes, it was pretty fun. Some teachers ended up getting a hold of this book, and they began to use it in their classrooms. And they said, oh, the, the students really love it. So... And, and those people who didn't have cultural stories actually created really engaging ones and incorporated marine biology science in, into the storytelling. Right. So it was pretty neat, yeah. Very cool. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what pushed me further to pursue sort of a more of a directed thought on diversity and inclusion. Like, yes. That part of me escalated once my daughter, who's of African-American heritage, began elementary school. Mm-hmm. And she was in kindergarten when she first encountered racism. And kids in grade five made fun of her hair and skin color. And really, of course, being a mom, that's where Mother Bear comes out, Bear and Claws. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? So I requested to meet with the principal, and when we met, we had, he had invited a counselor and a social worker. And I inquired about the curriculum and diversity education, and he said that they did learn about diversity, but in grade five, by way of hosting a potluck. And, and that surprised me, and I was disappointed to learn that diversity knowledge and appreciation and celebration didn't begin from the moment children entered school. Hmm. And after the meeting... The social worker who was there ended up contacting me to have coffee, and she revealed that her daughter had attended that same school and was severely bullied to the point where she had to pull her from the school. And she she also introduced me to a couple of documents. One was called Sifting Through the Layers, an Innovative Approach to Anti-Racism Education, which was a 2006 resource package. 
And the second document was a 2009 one. Uh, our school, our community, they, taking a stand for inclusion. Now, the interesting thing is that Sifting Through the Layers was created by Youth Against Racism and Voice It, and it was produced by the Intercultural Association of Greater Victoria. It was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts, the United Way of Greater Victoria, and the Canadian Heritage and Ministry of Attorney General, BC Anti-Racism and Multiculturalism Program. Hmm. That's a huge mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> that was really, really, you know, you had a lot of great, solid people and programs backing this uh, educational piece right. uh, document. Um, so again, this, this Rebus package was created by Youth for Youth, and it outlined an extensive list of excellent questions that challenged students' thinking. For example, how would you define systemic racism? Why do you think we don't learn about systemic racism? Have you ever tried to bring up these types of issues in the classroom or workplace? What types of responses have you received? Why do people hesitate to bring up issues of racism in the school or workplace? Powerful now, questions. The, Mm-hmm. The second document is called Our Schools, Our Community, Taking Stand for Inclusion, was a curriculum, actually a curriculum, written by Terry Flower and Cheryl Ward. And the prelude states, securing the next generation, involving high school students in the creation of an inclusive community. Again, that was like 2009. Wow. So it was really nice to read these two resources and learn of the vision of youth and other organizations and to learn that they were really trying to raise awareness and increase education on their diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I could see that in terms of, um, you know, oftentimes we, when we look at things that we're going through or we're experiencing, there is comfort in knowing that there's others, right? And so from what you've described, like, wow, in terms of the number of folks and, 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 and uh, programs involved in creating these documents, um, recognizing a, a, a gap or a need in terms of bringing awareness and um, increasing knowledge, right? Increasing learning. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I often wonder if, if those two pieces are ever used. Well, you know, my next question is going to be, I'd love to see them. Can Do you have them still? I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, maybe what I'll do is contact the Intercultural Society of the Greater Victoria and, and ask about whether they they have more information on these and if it if it can be shared I, I don't see why not but I but I'll probably reach out to, to request for permission. yeah that, that would be really great so I wanted to bring back my my outreach into more of the community and in the schools I think I already told you about this one Jody where I had approached my daughter's teacher about a wacky way to teach students about diversity where I had the student hold up a large piece of paper like a round piece of paper with DNA glued onto it each cell represented uh, the building blocks of DNA so and there were four colors blue green red and yellow and blue and green were, were a match red and yellow were a match and students from one class had to line up in a particular color order holding their cells in front of them the second class was allowed to freely match their cells up with their partner color, which resulted in two kid-sized lines representing the double helix DNA. The teacher then put on a red wig to, to de- demonstrate that they had just created the genetic code for red hair. <laughs> so, so it was quite fun. Like they, <clears throat> It was really quite fun. They, we played around with color order and created the genetic code for a variety of other physical traits. Um, but it got the kids up moving and interacting with one another and also taught them about the root of genetically derived physical difference. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I remember you sharing that. And I think it's such, a, <laughs> again, like a, such a wonderful, tangible 
example of bringing awareness and helping us learn about ourselves and each other. Like, what a smart way to do that. And with kids, I love it. But I keep thinking, well, how, how could we incorporate this in our workplace? He's like, let's do that. Let's do that at the next <laughs> session. Else, so. Oh, my God. I think it'd be so much fun. <laughs> totally. Totally. I love it. <laughs> so... So a few of my coworkers, uh, they were union executives, and they learned about the work that I was doing outside in the community. And they had approached me to ask if I'd be willing to run for the Union of Environmental Workers Regional Champion for Employment Equity. Hmm. I didn't have any idea what that was. I did apply, and I won the position, um, and went. To, I ended up going to all, all, all these different conferences and meetings, and, and it was really, really nice to meet so many like-minded people. And one particular person, uh, it was made such an impact on my life. And he, his name is Mr. Michael Ballard, an Indigenous man. He works as a fisheries field officer up, up island on the Vancouver Island, and he did much to champion the work of Indigenous people. So he used to be the chair for DFO's Regional Diversity Advisory Council, and he did a ton of work to help increase employment equity and the appreciation of diversity in the workplace. So he encouraged me to take more of a a lead role for the council and became my mentor officially towards that position. I came in, I couldn't have asked for a better mentor. He came in with a ton of experience and knowledge and I really respect and value his wisdom. And he's been a leader for the department in so many ways, especially in regards to reconciliation. He's, he's influenced and supported students and other public service employees, and he's become a trusted friend for many. Uh, so within my position on the Regional Diversity Advisory Council, I ended up holding uh, meetings and conferences with the members and with senior managers and then drafted from all of their input, drafted a policy document. And all through the while, I had a book with me called Successful Diversity Management Initiatives, A Blueprint for Planning and Implementation. And it was a book written by Patricia Arredondo. And it really helped me to understand the reasons behind what's required for a successful initiative, which is what guided this policy document and the challenges one may face, and the psychology behind it all. So Michael and I did have some challenges, but we also made some strides. Very cool. So, yeah, I got the opportunity to attend the International Persons with Disabilities Convention, the Pacific Aboriginal Network Conference, and the Public Service Alliance of Canada Visible Minority Conference. And I remember one of the presenters at the International Persons with Disabilities Convention who identified as a person with a disability in a wheelchair, He stated that it would be in the best interest for employers to hire persons with disabilities because they're amazing at solving problems. They have to solve problems every day, he said. And that really stuck in my mind. It sounds amazing that you had um, such uh, opportunities to, to to be with individuals who share the same passion and desires that you, you have. So I wanted to bring back my experience to diversity uh, based on, on one of my hobbies, and, through, and that's through cultural dance. Very cool. Uh, and I started to, yeah, I, I might have spoken about this to you, but I don't quite remember if I did, but this is the, the Middle Eastern dance. Uh, that I used to do. Well, I guess I kind of do it still, but 
it's, I began to study it 25 years ago, from Turkish Gypsy to Spanish Gypsy to Egyptian Cabaret to Lebanese Depki to North American Tribal. I even took some classical East Indian dances and revived my knowledge of a traditional Filipino dance called Tanikaling. Okay, Tanikaling, did you say? Yes. And that's a traditional Filipino dance. That's right. And uh, what it is, I ended up learning that dance in grade four by a teacher by the name of Dr. Denning. Very cool. Like grade four. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still remember. And you still remember well, it, okay. yeah. Yeah, and I still remember it. So what it is, it's where you dance between two long bamboo poles laid parallel to one another on the floor, held by two pole rhythm makers, one on either end, who are getting cross-legged. Mm-hmm. And the rhythm, well, they're actually on their knees, but the rhythm they create is a one-two-three rhythm, two on the ground and one in the air. And you need to dance in between those two moving poles without getting your ankles caught. Okay. Oh, my gosh. You know what? As you're describing that, I just had a flashback to being in my gym in elementary school because we did that exact dance. I don't remember it, what it was called, but we had yeah. big bamboo sticks, and that's, and that's what we did. That's right. Yeah. Wow. That's right. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, the music that we had for some reason, we had dire straits that was the music that oh. we had. <laughs> yeah i actually with my training in cultural dance i've performed all over i, I performed at a haiti relief fundraiser an african-american heritage celebration at a chinese new year celebration multicultural day celebration and at even at the indo-caribbean pavilion for the Winnipeg Folklorama. Yeah, my dance has taken me many different places. I became one of the members of a dance troupe called Pacifica, and we ran cultural dance productions in support of the Nanaimo and District SPCA, with our latter show being at the Port Theatre. Wow. So we were blessed to showcase dances from around the world, performed by some of the most talented dancers from Vancouver Island and beyond. So by doing this, I felt I was making a difference by increasing the appreciation of diversity and demonstrating inclusivity with my involvement in the production. Mm-hmm. We built lifelong relationships with people from the dance community, but also the public, and we became quite well known, uh, especially for a signature piece called Walk Like an Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, again, I love, I love the, the example that you share, and I think it's because in the, in the work that I've done or folks that I work with in the federal government and in, in, with the idea of um, in, in HR and the, all these topics come up often, I, I feel that sometimes we struggle with, well, how do we, like, what are we going to do? And oftentimes it's an information session, which isn't a, a bad thing. But from what you're, uh-huh. what, what you're describing, I think is really cool because it's a different way, tangible and something you can experience that continues to... Uh-huh to inform and to um, to have these really important conversations around inclusivity and diversity and, and doing it through dance, I think is a really neat way um, to, to do that. I think it's incredible. And I think it's maybe can inspire individuals who listen to this podcast to think, oh, maybe instead of a, just an information session, maybe we can try this or maybe we can try that. I think it's really cool. Thank you. I actually ended up bringing that concept into work. Oh, you did? part of a health and wellness. Mm-hmm. It was part of a health and wellness initiative, uh, and a few co-workers were like, really on board and supportive with this. So my proposal was to hold a multicultural potluck hospitality event at the Pacific Biological Station. Mm-hmm. The in- in- initiative was directed towards increasing mental wellness in the workplace by creating a positive environment where employees could experience a variety of ethnic foods and culture through music and dance and increase interpersonal relationships. Again, it's all about interpersonal relationships as well, right? Mm -hmm. Learning about one another. 
Over a hundred people attended, and the evening was opened up by a welcome dance and song performed by a 15-member band for the Snemu community. The evening continued with a First Nations storyteller from Big Qualicum and a live marimba band and a variety of other cultural dance performances. Uh, when did this happen? Oh, let's see. That would have eight years ago now. So we wanted to know were our goals met? Like how do you how do you measure success, right? Mm. So the way that I could say that this was a successful event was the the fact that we received many emails congratulating us on this. Again I went back to the community. Because ah. <laughs> I don't stop, Jody. I, I noticed that. <laughs> Perseverance is a beautiful thing, my friend. <laughs> Well, I ended up bringing an initiative and I wrote a proposal to teach cultural dance to an entire elementary school of 364 students. Wow. And this is, is this recent for you? Yeah, this was about, about four years ago. Okay. And what came of that? Well, um, it was uh, accepted. Well, I ended up uh, teaching Spanish Gypsy, Turkish Gypsy, Bollywood, Filipino Tamikling, and Israeli dance, a Chinese ribbon dance. Caribbean dance and a Chinese dragon dance to the school. Broke up the kids into classes, of course. And one of the moms wrote Super Creative, Around the World with Granny, which incorporated the dances and facts about the country of origin into the play. And Granny was actually Jasmine from Aladdin, remembering her travels around the world on a magic carpet. Wow. So the kids wore, mm-hmm, they wore appropriate ethnic attire, which props were built, including a really big kid-sized Chinese dragon. And two of my classes, the Bollywood and the Caribbean, were invited to perform at the University of Victoria Dance Festival. Many of these kids, you you need to think this way too, many of these kids had never danced before, much less been exposed to cultural dance, and even much more or less performed on stage ever. This was hugely exciting for them. And boys were were even saying that they wanted to do it again. Very cool. Because they were initially, when I first started teaching the dance, this is the chicken dance. We don't want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So at the year-end performance, we had young children from the Tsekum First Nations community open up the performance with a welcome song and drumming, which was really, really nice. It's a blessing. And even though I completed, yeah, it was about three years ago, three years ago I completed this, I have kids still come up to me and say hello. Wow. You, you you talked about measuring success and impact, um, and I'm I'm fascinated about intent and impact. And I just think you know having children come to you now after three years from doing this, that must feel amazing. It does feel amazing. <laughs> it's really, of course I don't remember anyone's names, but okay. <laughs> to have them come up to me, duh, their eyes grow wide. Like, I know you. (laughs) You're the cool dancing lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to ask, you've shared such beautiful stories and and tangible examples of how you've tried to um, encourage and bring bring to light awareness when it comes to diversity and inclusion. What um, what would you like the audience to know in terms of final thoughts? As their communities become more diverse and our workforce becomes more and more representative of our public, we begin to realize the importance of diversity training. Uh, discussions on power and privilege are not meant to make people feel bad, 
experiment to help identify systemic barriers. Often when people speak about systemic barriers or barriers which prevent a person from succeeding in life, it is seen as complaining, as being negative, as dwelling in the past, or as what was needed. And what is not understood here is that barriers are needed to be identified, thoroughly discussed ripped apart, analyzed, and ripped apart again in order for gaps to be identified. We need to identify the bridges that need to be created in order to address and fill these gaps and prevent further barriers. So that is create space for the grassroots discussion as it will help build a momentum forward for innovative thinking and a solution-based approach. Personally, if ever a policy needs to be written, it's a policy of how to prevent barriers. (laughs) (laughs) I believe this, this is a science in itself. Yeah, for sure. So... Motivating factors, we need to identify motivating factors for success. Private sectors and businesses place high value on diversity and inclusion training as it directly impacts relationships with clients and the community and other businesses. And we know relationships are built on trust with clear communication and clear understanding of mutual benefits. So it's important to think about a long-term analysis of mutual benefits and identify the risks if the relationships become broken. Like what's the loss? What's the cost of recovery? Mm-hmm. And it may seem that this, as though this is largely part of the work of human resource personnel, but I believe that it's important if the department is to move forward with the mind frame of diversity and inclusion, then the whole of the public service needs to see the value and impact it can have on the work that we do. Yeah, absolutely. I've started to think to myself, we're all HR. Like, you know, <laughs> right. it, it really, at the end of the day, there's such amazing work being done by public servants, by uh, within our communities. And it's just because we're all human and, you know, there's, there is a lot of commonality in terms of what we want to see in our lives. And so as you, uh-huh. as you describe, it, it's, it's all of us at the end of the day. Uh-huh. Correct. Lastly, I wanted to leave you with these words. Increasing diversity awareness is an asset in our working environment where employees may work with people of different backgrounds, call it cultural age, sexual orientation. Understanding tolerance and patience for all people of different backgrounds will help to build positive working relationships. Ideas and thoughts from all groups of people are beneficial to Canadians as collaboration of different minds can result in new innovative ideas and or solutions in or new approaches towards the work that we do. How do we begin this journey? Through non-directed, free thought, grassroots discussions. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rosaya. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. You're most welcome, Jody. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.